Hi, I'm Whitney. And I'm Camden. Welcome to Ghosts and Garnets. Murder in Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. You know, when I think of Connecticut, I think of like white people skiing. I think of connect I cut because that's how I was taught to spell it. (laughs) And also white people in linen pants, button down oversized shirts. All right. I could see that. Like some of those like boat shoes. I was just going to say in some loafers. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm with you. I have two things to tell you. One, my sister is taking me to a serial killer talk tonight. Yeah. Like, is the serial killer there or what? No. Well, I wish it was a serial killer. No. I know. Um, it's a, an expert on serial killers, I think. Um, I don't know. She bought the tickets for me for Christmas. Um, and I think it's like inside the mind of a serial killer or something. And it's at the Egyptian. Oh, that'd be fun. So we're going to that. Yes. And also, I had this dream, and I've been waiting all day to tell you about it because I wanted to tell you about it on the podcast. Last night, I had a dream, and we were like on a big boat, and I was supposed to go down to the bottom of the boat, and there were all of these like inflatables full of water and air, and I was supposed to be getting all the water and the air out of these inflatables, and I picked up this like red duffel thing. And I was like, there's something in here. And you were like, it's water. And I said, no, it's like alive. And you were like, it's water. And I said, no, it's not. And I opened the bag and inside were four cats and they were dressed like the golden girls. (laughs) Yes. And so I was like, oh my God, they had like little bonnets and scarves and jewelry on. And it was very clear who was who. And I took Rose because I liked her hat. And you took Blanche because she had a leopard print sweater on. And my sister (laughs) took Dorothy. And then in my dream, nobody wanted Sophia, which in real life, Sophia Petrillo, I would take you in a second. Like, yeah, hot second of the Golden Girls. But for some reason in my dream, nobody wanted to take Sophia the cat. And we got into like a fight about it. So what did we do? Not I woke up. I don't know. Unknown. Well, hopefully, maybe you'll go back to it tonight. You can find out the ending. Maybe. I will. I am tantalized. Um, Tittalized? They they were very cute. Yeah. Tantalized, titillized, Twitter-pated. I don't know. Samesies. Potato, tomato. (laughs) Potato, tomato. (laughs) All right. We are going to go to Road Trip Connecticut today. I have not read the script. So I'm excited. I have no idea what this story is. Like, none at all. It's so good. And I am so high on caffeine right now. I was just telling Whitney. And so hopefully you guys can uh, muddle through it with me. But this man is a real <laughs> fuck. Ooh, yay. All right. Well, the story we have for you today is a shocking and gruesome crime that thrust the state of Connecticut into the national headlines and ultimately became the inspiration of the award-winning 1997 movie Fargo. Today, we are telling you about the murder of Heli Crafts. Is that right, Heli? Hella. I should have told you that from the beginning. Hella. Um, that's a weird name, Hella Crafts. 
That should be the name of a craft store. I know. Helix. <laughs> TM. <laughs> well, I know I actually had to have my computer pronounce it for me because I wanted to call her Healy or Heli. Yeah. 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 All right. But alas. <laughs> I'm never going to get over this. Hello crafts. So Hello crafts. It's the best. <laughs> Seriously, TM. Nobody has this idea. All oh, right. Lady. And we'll sell cats dressed as golden girls. Oh golden my God. Girl cat costumes at Hello crafts. <laughs> the only place you can get your golden girls cat costumes, Hello crafts or hellacrafts.com. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that we were high on something else. Not caffeine. You would. This concept going. (laughs) All right. All right. Get serious now. Get serious. On November 18th, 1986, in the middle of a hellacious snowstorm that knocked the power out for hours, a coworker dropped Hella Crafts off at her home in Newton, Connecticut, after working a long flight together as they were both flight attendants and they had flown from Frankfurt, West Germany. Hella sighed as she got out of the car, realizing that her husband Richard was home. It was the last time anybody saw her alive. At 6 a.m. the next morning, Richard ushered their three children and live in Nanny out of the house, telling them he was going to take them to his sister's house in Westport, Connecticut to wait out the power outage. He told them Hella had already left and would meet them there, but Hella never arrived. Over the next few weeks, Richard gave Hella's friends a variety of stories as to why they were unable to reach her. He said that she was visiting her mother in Denmark, that she was visiting Club Med in the Canary Islands with a friend, or that he simply did not know where she was. Hella's friends were aware that Richard had a volatile temper and grew concerned. Hella had told some of them, quote, if something happens to me, don't assume it was an accident, end quote. Can you imagine being in a marriage where you're like, if I disappear, it's because my husband murdered me. See, and I'm afraid that Jacob tells people that every day. (laughs) If something happens to me, you've met that little. Well, he should be extra afraid because I would alibi your ass up and down, up and down. You'd be covered alibi wise. So, he should be. Okay. <laughs> Not after this episode comes out. No one can prove otherwise. All right. Hella Lork Nelson was born in Denmark on July 7th, 1947, and met her future husband, Richard Crafts, in Miami in 1969 when she was training as a flight attendant for Pan Am. And Richard, an ex Marine, was training to become a pilot for Eastern Airlines. Hella had believed she was unable to have children, and when she got pregnant while they were dating, Richard was enraged. He beat her and forced her to get an abortion. When she got pregnant again, he left her. Hella scheduled an abortion, but suddenly Richard changed his mind, saying he wanted the child after all. They married a few days later, but it wasn't long before Richard was back to expressing his reluctance, questioning whether or not the child was even his. 
and he wasn't happy about the next two pregnancies either, not even bothering to show up for the birth of their youngest daughter. When asked why he had married Hella, Richard unromantically replied, quote, Hella was pregnant at the time we were married. We knew she was pregnant. It was far too advanced for a doctor to perform an abortion, and we decided to get married, unquote. What a fucker. Does he not know how sex works? If you don't want to have babies, stop having unprotected sex. Yeah, and this is just like, this guy's the worst. I mean, the fact that she even married him at all is just mind-blowing to me, especially because she was kind of like, you know, she had a career of her own. And so it's not, she was a self-made woman. She was on her way. Right. This guy's Mm. the worst. Sociopaths. You just don't know. You know, they can turn even a wildly independent woman a little cuckoo for a time. Mm. In 1984, doctors discovered that Richard had colon cancer and gave him only a 2% chance of survival. Unfortunately for Hella, he beat those odds. In 1986, Hella began to suspect that Richard was engaging in extramarital sexual activities and confronted him about some suspicious long-distance phone calls she found on their phone bill. The confrontation enraged Richard. He didn't like the idea of paying alimony and child support and dividing up the family possessions. So amid their tumultuous relationship, he tried to stop a breakup by telling Hella his cancer had returned and he had chosen to abandon treatment. Hella was becoming wise to her husband's antics and called his doctor. He informed her that Richard's treatment was complete and his health was stable. This was only the beginning of Richard's many, many lies. Wow. That's some like, he doesn't want to pay alimony or child support for the kids he didn't even want in the first place, but kept having because he couldn't keep his dick in his pants. And then he keeps her there by saying that his cancer has returned. Yeah. Good thing she was smart and called the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Agree with that. I don't know. This poor woman. I just... I don't know if I've heard this. I feel like it's tickling the back of my mind somewhere. You're... When you find out what he does to her, you'll... You'll know. I'll remember. Okay. In the fall of 1986, with a divorce imminent, Hella hired a private detective named Keith Mayo to find out what exactly what her husband had been up to. Mayo confirmed that she what she had suspected all along, that her husband was having an affair, and had been doing so for at least a decade. The other mm-hmm. woman was an Eastern Airlines flight attendant from Middleton, New Jersey, named Nancy Dodd. Now, obviously, the Kraft's marriage had been in bad shape for a while. And a part of that, other than the fact that he was a wife-beating lunatic, was because Richard would disappear for long stretches of time that didn't seem to correlate with his schedule as a pilot. Turned out that Richard was lying about his flight schedule in order to make time to see his girlfriends. Hella also discovered receipts for Christmas gifts her husband had bought for other women. He was good at keeping secrets, but not good enough. Richard would later nonchalantly admit to state police that he actually had a second girlfriend who was another Eastern flight attendant and that his job as a pilot presented a lot of nice opportunities to cheat. He felt absolutely entitled to what he described to police as his, quote, extracurricular activities, unquote, with other women. He said, I'm away from home many nights a month and you run out of books to read. Ew. 
Ew. I know. In an episode of Forensic Files, Hella's divorce attorney, Diane Anderson, stated that Richard physically abused Hella. Friends said that he once punched Hella in front of guests at a dinner party and that they had seen her with black eyes and other injuries. They went on to say that Richard was tight with money and made Hella pay for most of the household expenses, even though she made about a third of what he did. But of course, this dickbag would splurge on the things he enjoyed, like expensive tools and machinery and a weapons collection that included more than 50 guns. Hella told her divorce attorney that if she disappeared, Richard did it, and that Richard, quote, had a lot of guns in the house. But Richard's sadistic streak didn't start with Hella. During and after his time in the Marines, he flew flights for Air America, which was then a CIA-run airline that in was involved in a clandestine operation in Vietnam and Laos. He bragged of leaving the hatch open and performing hotshot maneuvers when he was assigned to ferry prisoners, watching his terrified passengers scream for their lives as they rolled around the open plane. He also described how the pilots amused themselves by throwing monkeys attached to little tiny parachutes out of their planes. Like this guy is a true maniac. I don't I don't even know where to start, but I'm going to start with the monkey-sized parachutes because that's where I initially go. <laughs> there are miniature parachutes for monkeys? Well, I mean, I'm sure that it, yeah, I mean the military I'm sure was doing some sort of testing or who knows what that they were doing with these. I don't know. And this was the only thing that I could find on it. So, I mean, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but... No, he's he's clearly a sadistic fuck. Uh, like, clearly. He clearly. gets off on the fear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, terrorizing people. Mm-hmm. And monkeys. Yeah. Which are kind of just like tiny, hairy people. Tiny people. Yeah. On October 14, 1986, after Mayo confirmed Richard's cheating, Hella met with her attorney to begin the divorce proceedings. She tried to keep things civil between them, even agreeing that he could keep living in the house until the divorce went through, as long as he didn't see his girlfriend, a deal that he promptly broke, she had found out. Hella arranged to have the divorce papers delivered on November 14th while the children were at school. Richard told her he would accept service, but instead slipped out of the back door when the sheriff arrived. He had already put into motion a very different plan for his wife. The day before he was supposed to accept service of these divorce papers, Richard had gone out and bought a large capacity freezer. He also bought a shovel and heat-resistant gloves. And on November 18, 1986, the last day, Hella was seen alive. He rented a large wood chipper, powerful enough to chip logs a foot thick. He bought a large capacity freezer, heat-resistant gloves, and a wood chipper? This all over the place. All right. <laughs> all right, Richard. On December 1st, two weeks after Hella had last been seen, Keith Mayo reported Hella missing to the Newton police. Now, Richard Crafts was well-known to local law enforcement. You see, Richard was a wannabe cop, of course he was, mm-hmm. who spent much of his free time working as a $7-an-hour auxiliary officer for a neighboring town. He had even outfitted his personal car, a Ford, <laughs> Ford Crown Victoria, 
<laughs> the same model as most police cars with a siren and flashing red lights on the dashboard. According to Mayo, Newton police initially completely dismissed his concerns, saying that Hella would probably return, mm. pretending to be a policeman. Fearing that the local police weren't taking Hella's disappearance seriously, Mayo decided to start investigating a little bit on his own. Mayo eventually took his findings to the county prosecutor, who referred the case to the Connecticut State Police. And on December 26, 1986, while Richard was vacationing with his children in Florida, troopers were given a warrant to search the Kraft home. The forensic investigation was led by Henry Lee, who at the time was an investigator for the state police. Inside the home, they found pieces of carpet taken from the master bedroom floor. They also found a blood smear on the side of the mattress. Richard's credit card record showed several unusual purchases around the time that Hella had vanished, including bedsheets, a comforter, and the rental of a wood chipper. And somehow at this point, this dumbass gave a receipt for the rental of the wood chipper to an investigator, all the while continuing to claim he had no idea where his wife was. There is nothing more sinister than the rental of a wood chipper and a missing spouse. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care how powerful a wood chipper is. That's going to be a real mess. That's going to be a real, real mess. An out and out blunder, you might say. An out and out forensic blunder. You're never going to clean a wood chipper good enough to get the DNA out of that. You could submerge it in bleach and there would still be stuff around. Yeah, I mean, oh, oh wood chippers. That's gross. That's gross it's though. super gross, and it gets grosser. So, Ugh. A key piece of evidence was provided by a man named Joseph Hine, who was working for the town of Southbury, Connecticut, as a snowplow driver. He said that on the night of November 18th, just hours after Hella had last been seen, he was plowing the roads during the snowstorm when he noticed a rental truck with a wood chipper attached to it parked close to the shore of Lake Zor. He led detectives to the location where they examined the water's edge. Richard had apparently pulled over there to try to clean out any bits of human remains inside the wood chipper by running branches and vegetation through it before he returned it. When Richard learned detectives were going to search in and around the river, this dumbass reportedly said to his brother-in-law, quote, let them dive. There's nobody. It's gone. Investigators did find an envelope with Hella written on the front and many small pieces of metal, as well as something much more sinister. About three ounces of human tissue, including a thumb, <gasps> the crown of a tooth, a fingernail covered in pink <sighs> nail polish, <laughs> bone chips, and what would be counted out to 2,660 bleached blonde human hairs and O-type blood, which was the same type as that of Hella. Could you imagine? Additionally, a chainsaw with a scratched-off serial number that contained traces of blonde human hair was found by divers underwater. Investigators were able to recover the serial number from the chainsaw, and it matched the number Richard Crafts had filled out on a warranty form at the rental company. The police concluded that Richard Crafts had bludgeoned his wife to death with a blunt object in their bedroom, then wrapped her in plastic like a piece of meat, and put her body in the freezer for hours until it was frozen solid. He then transported her corpse to a secluded piece of property he owned nearby and cut her into more manageable pieces with the chainsaw. 
and then fed the pieces through the wood chipper, probably projecting her fragmented remains into the truck and then shoveling them out into the shore. It was an almost foolproof plan. Except he left fingernails and stuff on the shoreline. Fingernails. Tell the people about the time that you found a fingernail in your barbecue. God. (laughs) So there was a restaurant here in town. It is no longer here. Weird. (laughs) And we had gone out to dinner and it was like a barbecue restaurant and it was, we were just going to try it. And so I ordered whatever I ordered and it came with a side of coleslaw and literally had not taken any bites of anything else. And I go and take a bite of the coleslaw and it was super crunchy. And I was like, why is this so crunchy? Like coleslaw is crunchy, but it's not this crunchy. So I spit it out because, of course, I'm a freak about food. And there's a motherfucking fake ass fingernail. In this motherfucking coleslaw. And a long acrylic nail in Camden's coleslaw. That I put in my mouth. (laughs) So my husband at the time goes up to the, the owner was there and was like, because I am like trying not to lose my collective shit, right? But I was like about to start crying because I had a finger. Who knows? This finger could have wiped somebody's butt. (laughs) I don't know. And he says, so he comes over to the table and he first, I didn't have acrylic fingernails. They were all natural at that point. And he says to me, well, it's just a piece of plastic, kind of like that straw you're drinking out of right now. And I said, excuse me, sir, but did this straw potentially wipe somebody's asshole? No. Well, needless to say, I didn't eat dinner that night. <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> so disgusting. People wonder why oh. I'm so weird about food. Could you imagine? When you called and told me that story, I seriously, like, it could not have happened to a worse person because Kim is already <laughs> weird about food. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> oh, anyway. All right. (laughs) Now, a prosecution for homicide requires an official determination of death of the alleged victim. Typically, this is done by identification of a body, which was not available in this case. But with the help of a forensic dentist, the tooth crown found on the water's edge was positively matched to Hella's dental records. On this evidence, the Connecticut State Medical Examiner's Office issued a death certificate on January 13th, 1987, and Richard was immediately arrested for murder and held on $750,000 bond at the Bridgeport Community Correctional Center. In preparation for a trial, State Medical Examiner H. Wayne Carver obtained a pig carcass that was fed through a wood chipper. Mm-hmm. Gross. The shape of and marks on the pig's bone chips after the process were similar to the shape of Hella's bone fragments, strengthening the hypothesis that Richard had used a wood chipper to dispose of his wife's body. Meanwhile, more damning evidence against Richard was coming in. An appliance dealer came forward and told police Richard had paid cash for a deep freezer a few days before Hella's disappearance and refused to give his name to the man. 
Richard's lack of concern over his wife's absence didn't really help his case either. Hella's friend, Jet Romp, is that a real name? Jet Romp? Yeah, I know. What is going on? Testified that when she expressed concern because Hella hadn't shown up for work, Richard told her, quote, you've been watching too many movies, end quote. Hella's mom, Elizabeth Nielsen, refuted Richard's claim that Hella had gone to Copenhagen to nurse her back to health in November. Hella wasn't scheduled to visit her mom, and her mom added that she had felt fine. She wasn't sick. She had not been ill, as Richard had claimed. Richard Kraft's murder trial began in May of 1988 in New London, where it was moved due to extensive local publicity. The case went to jury after 54 days. On July 15, 1988, the 17th day of jury deliberations, a single juror, the only juror in favor of acquittal, refused to continue with deliberations, and the judge declared a mistrial. The juror, Warren Maskell, had been visiting a nearby church every day at lunchtime, seeking divine guidance. His belief in Kraft's innocence was unshaken. To the end, he said, quote, a woman who was sick of trying to change a guy could just take off and say the hell with it. I think Hella Crafts might still be alive, end quote. Yeah, and she's just throwing bits and bobs and hairs of her body onto the lakeshore for funsy. Mm-hmm. What a dumb, dumb motherfucker. <laughs> The only thing that comforted Hella's friends and family during the trial was that Richard was in jail the entire time. He couldn't come up with the bail money, and incarcerated he would stay. A second jury, luckily, found him guilty of murder on November 21st, 1989. It marked Connecticut's first homicide conviction without a body, and the first time the state had allowed cameras in a murder trial. A judge gave Kraft 50 years. Yeah. It's got, I can't even imagine how awful it would be as like a victim's family or victim or, you know, the, the prosecution team, the investigators, everyone who put in so much hard work and, you know, months and months, sometimes years of work before a trial starts. And then the jurors are in deliberations for three fucking weeks and come back with a mistrial. I mean, I honestly, I can't believe a judge let it go on that long. Usually, it's after a few days if they can't come to a decision. They're like, well, and it just blows my mind that somebody would. I mean, of course, Richard's whole plan was that there wouldn't be a body, so there wasn't a crime. He thought that he would get yeah. away with it because they wouldn't be able to find a body. But um, when you find that much fragments of a body, I mean, yeah. it's pretty clear, people. Don't be dumb. Yeah. No, it just it's just as such a like a labor intensive way to get rid of a body. Yeah. I mean, and I mean he would this, have had more luck just like submerging it in that lake, to be honest. Yeah, probably. And, I mean, yeah. the investigators did say that had Joseph Hine not come forward, they probably never yeah. would have discovered. No. I mean, this was the first time that somebody had been convicted of murder without a body in Connecticut. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. In 1993, Crafts appealed contending the circumstantial evidence was insufficient and the nationwide publicity about the crime prevented a fair trial. But no luck on that. The state Supreme Court upheld his conviction, and that same year, a judge refused Richard's bid to take money from Hella Kraft's estate. 
Like, excuse me, sir. The three children, ages ranging from 5 to 10 at the time of their mother's murder, stayed with some of Hella's friends and continued to attend a school in Newtown. Until eventually, one of Richard Kraft's sisters, Karen Rogers, took custody of the kids. The state saw to it that the children received Richard's pension fund. On January 30th, 2020, Richard was released from prison. (gasps) How could this happen, you ask? This would be 20 years off of his original 50-year sentence, which is insane. Um, yeah. Well, it definitely wasn't because of his sister, Karen Rogers. She didn't write any letters to the parole board in support of Richard. She sided with the prosecution during the trial and encouraged the judge to give him the maximum sentence. She also said that Kraft's son, Andrew, was afraid of his father. And unfortunately, Hella's lawyer wasn't around to fight Richard's release. She died in 2012. Documents stated that Richard was released early because of statutory good time, which allows sentences to be shorter for good behavior and jailhouse jobs. That law has since been changed. Richard was released from prison into a Bridgeport halfway house named Isaiah House, then to a shelter for homeless veterans, also in Bridgeport. And in the summer of 2020, he was a totally free man. He only spent 30 years in prison for wood chipping his wife. What the fuck, Connecticut? Yeah, isn't that what insane? What the fuck, man? I mean, you have people that get fucking life sentences for dealing weed mm-hmm. who who spend their lives in prison. And this motherfucker in his docksiders wood chips his <laughs> wife out by a lake and he only spends 30 years in prison? Mm-hmm. Gross. And that took a lot of planning, too, on his part. I mean, it was totally premeditated. There's no way around oh, that. God. Like, Yeah. No. You're you're buying things in advance. You're renting things in advance. This is a full-blown capital murder. At the very least, it should be life without the possibility of parole if you don't have the death penalty in your state. It's, it's fucking capital murder. Right. And one of the things that just, like boggles my mind about this dumbass is the fact that he would rent a wood chipper like here's the thing renting it like there's obviously going to be some sort of paper trail rather whether you gave a name or not but obviously i mean he had and one of the things you know i was reading because he liked those expensive tools and machinery he bought like a twenty thousand dollar excavator like a mini excavator like uh-huh. he had some money like maybe buy a wood chipper at some point for your property or use that excavator and just bury her you dumbass i'm not yeah. giving you ideas guys i'm just thinking renting a wood chipper is the dumbest thing i've ever heard in my life well especially because you can't clean the wood chipper i cannot put enough emphasis on this <laughs> You cannot clean a wood chipper. There's always going to be DNA in there somewhere. Always. And I know this was the 80s and they didn't have DNA, but they still had eyeballs and fucking brains in their head to realize that your wife went missing right after you rented a fucking wood chipper and bought a deep freezer. Yeah. I did not at any point during the story remember this story. Like I had the little tickle, like I had heard it before. Mm -hmm. I don't remember this. No. I bet if you watched the forensic files on it, you would remember it. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe. Her Maybe name 
sounds familiar to me. And the, and the part about him being a pilot sounds familiar to me, but I think maybe I'm thinking of like a lifetime movie where there was a pilot who had like 17 different families all over the country. Gross probably. Yeah. Well, so, so like I said, in the very beginning, the, the Fargo movie yeah. was yeah. very, very loosely based on this, but they had that whole wood chipper scene. And I don't think I ever watched Fargo all the way through. I think I watched oh, bits it's so and good. of it, but I didn't, mm-hmm. I think it was one of those where I was like, oh, it's too much. It's kind of weird because it's like a crime comedy, which isn't usually my genre, but it was just quirky enough that. Yeah. I think maybe some of the, the characters time I were too quirky. Maybe you should go back and try it because it's pretty good, but I it should. was based on this, this case and you know, a few others, but uh, my old Connecticut brings us back to the infamous wood chipper, which Ooh. it's it, this is the wood chipper from the movie, not the actual murder, but it's on <laughs> okay. display at the Fargo Moorhead Visitor Center. And apparently they will provide you with a leg, a fake leg and a, a bomber leg? hat because that's yeah, a fake leg because and a bomber hat. So that you can capture a picture of yourself reliving one of cinema's goriest moments. You get to feed a fake leg into a wood chipper with well, a... Well, you just make it look... With a winter cap on? Yeah, because of fog on North Dakota. Gotta have that furry hunter's cap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what I know what cap we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but also, Connecticut is just... It's wild times over there. So the creepy doll in the film The Conjuring... You ever seen those? No, I don't want, you know, I don't watch those movies. I know, but haven't you seen the, like, I've seen them all. But anyway, it's inspired by a real, allegedly haunted Raggedy Ann doll that Ed and Lorraine Warren stored away in their occult museum in Monroe, Connecticut. The doll belonged to a young nurse who received it as a present. After the doll came home, the nurse and her roommate began to notice strange things occurring, like the doll changing positions and mysterious scratches appearing on their guests. Tiny bits of parchment paper started appearing with messages like, quote, help us, <gasps> scribbled on them in childlike handwriting. No. They soon brought in a psychic who conducted a seance and told them the doll was haunted by the spirit of a little girl named Annabelle Higgins, who had once lived in the apartment building. The roommates, taking pity on the child, decided to let her stay. Big mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Things became aggressive in the home, and the Warrens came in to help get things under control. The Warrens then informed the young women that their psychic had been mistaken. No little girl existed in Annabelle. Just a demon lying in order to win sympathy, in order to eventually possess one of the women. The Warrens took the doll away and stored it behind glass with crucifixes in their famous Museum of Haunted Objects. Mm, you know how I feel about the Warrens. I don't have positive feelings about the Warrens. I feel like they're ugh, a bunch of shysters. They're shysters. They are. Whitney, you just shut up. <laughs> My my mom and my mom and stepdad have this really nice woman who comes once a month and clean their cleans their house. And she's been doing it for years and years and years. And she, my kids love her. 
And so her mom passed away and her mom had this collection of like very old antique dolls. Mm-hmm. And she brought them all over to my mom's house so that my daughter and my niece could choose some to take before she donated this collection. And it was a group of the creepiest fucking dolls you've ever seen in your life. Terrifying. Terrifying. And my daughter picked two of them out. And I had to steer her away from one because I thought, if that thing comes in my house, I'm never sleeping again. It is the stuff yeah, of nightmare, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Really nice thought, lady. But no, she and she's mm. lovely. We love her. But I just yeah. can't do an old scary doll. I just don't like it. And you can't play with those dolls. You know, they're like no heavy and old, dirty, creepy, S- possessed. You know, you don't possessed. want a possessed toy. For sure. Yeah. Nope. <sighs> well, that yeah. is, that's, a, that's wild times. And I almost wish we were doing LGI still because I have this story that I really want to do an LGI on. <sighs> I don't know if I can save it until we start doing LGIs again. Because I watched a documentary yesterday. I swear to God, I've never heard of this. And it's the craziest fucking thing I've ever heard of. Where did life. it happen? California. Oh, damn it. I've already passed California. California in 19, the late 1970s, a fucking entire busload of children, 26 children, were kidnapped. Yes. And buried in a fucking hole in the ground. Yes. A lady that I work with lived in the same town and was friends with some of those kids. Couchilla. Yes. And they were all so fucked up from it. And- mm-hmm. They were buried in the ground. The ages they, were four to 14 years old. Four years old. But I can't remember. They literally were buried for like 36 hours. They were there for 36 hours under the ground. So, and it took, it took work to get them out. And you know who broke them out? The 14-year-old boy, not yes. the adult bus driver. The adult no. bus driver was scared. Um, because he thought that they were still there, the kidnappers. And the 14-year-old boy was like, fuck this, we're all going to die. We're going to suffocate in this tiny hole. And so he spent like 12 hours like busting through the fucking roof yeah. to get them out. And the other thing is, wasn't it a bunch of wealthy kids who did the kidnapping? The bad guys were three fucking dummies, one of whom's parents owned like Magic Mountain. And he had yeah. a trust of like $100 million in the 1970s. But oh, and they buried him in, they buried them in a rock pit that one of the kids owned that did the kidnapping. The, Ma- the Magic Mountain parents, they owned this rock quarry. And they had buried yeah. a moving van under the ground and then put the kids Total. in the moving van under the ground and then covered it. Uh, scary. And I'd never heard That'd it. So never yeah. heard of it. How is that insane? I mean, like, how have I never heard this story? That's why we'll never be out of a job because there's, <sighs> there's so always much crazy, crazy shit. Yeah. Oh my God. I know it's mental. Um, okay, guys. So March, March, the road trip in March is the lowest of hanging fruit, true crime wise or otherwise, the state of Florida. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know how we are going 
to narrow this down. So if you have a Florida case and you want us to cover it, please let us know, message us, you can email us, whatever. But I don't even know how we're going to get it down to, to a single thing. I can tell you I do not, and we will not be covering the dude who ate the bath salts and then ate the guy's face. It's gross. Yeah. I care not for it. Well, and I don't, how do we get even 40 minutes out of that? Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's just so much good stuff. I don't even know. Like, maybe we'll go old-timey. We have not gone old-timey in a while. No, we haven't. But then you probably have to write it because you're really good at the old-timeys. I would like to do the Florida one. So I'll do road trip next next month. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I'll suss through all that fucking sewage. So try to be helpful, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fucking sewage of Florida. <laughs> all right. And that was the story of Richard Kraft and his maniacal, sadistic, monkey- and woman abusing ways <laughs> ending in the demise with a wood chipper. Oh, hope you enjoyed hanging out with us today. Yes, we do. And if you guys would like some extra content in the form of a bonus episode, click the support the show link in the show notes. It'll take you over to Patreon. You can get signed up and you will have access to our entire backlog of monthly bonus episodes for our subscribers and we would love you and give you a shout out on the show so thank you guys so much for hanging out with us we will see you in two weeks keep your pants on yeah man <laughs> <laughs>